Welcome back to another episode of No Player Connected. For this episode, I'm enjoying some time abroad in Sweden. We are joined by our good friend that goes fast and kicks ass, Astrid. How are you doing today? Doing unhinged. How are you? <laughs> Same. Same, but I think for different reasons. Yes. So, what are we what are we looking at today? What is this beautiful game that I'm standing in? This is Cry of Fear. It is a Half-Life 2 mod that was taken down as a mod and re-uploaded to Steam as a free game in the Source Gold engine by a development team that is no longer together anymore. And it is simultaneously one of my favorite video games ever made and one of my least favorite video games ever made. It is unique in that regard. I love it. I have a hard time recommending it to people in hindsight. <laughs> yeah, I remember you mentioning that during my during my streams. I, I think it's a phenomenal game. Like, it makes me feel something, which I always consider a, you know, a mark to strive for with, with video games. That being misery and fear and getting scared out of my mind. <laughs> which is exactly what horror games should be able to pull out of folks at least they're attempting to do that and cry of fear has always been that kind of effective for me that's for sure so do you want to give just like a the briefest of summaries of what's going on in this game because i feel like you could sum up the plot pretty quick but this game has a lot more content to it than I thought. Like when I first got into it, I thought, oh, this will be a nice, like, I don't know, couple hour journey. How long could it possibly be? And then it took me a, a good long while to make my way through it. But uh, what's it all about? Do you want the the quick like, hey, this is the sort of tagline to get people to play? Or do you want me to just go off on what this game is actually Ooh. about? Oh, what do you want to do? I want to do both. I can do both. Do, do both. All right. So what you kind of get in the beginning is this introduction of this guy, Simon, who seems pretty depressed and not doing so good. He's just on his way home and surprise, city is full of monsters and he's got to battle through these monsters just to try to get home. Everything seems dark and twisted and he's not sure what is happening and in every turn that you could go to logically to try to call someone that doesn't work if you try to ask any of the people around what's going on they all have various answers like they either don't know what's happening or well obviously it's this and they mention something that you've never seen before <laughs> and there doesn't seem to be any sanity left to be found in this world of poor Simon just trying to get home. And as you go through the story, you find that this is actually very twisted and dark in a way that is specifically personal to Simon and who he is. And that's how I would describe the game to try to get someone into it. But as you said, there's so much more. There's so much happening in this story, and while the creators have never been very forthcoming with what the game is intended to be interpreted as, and there are people who have given explanations as to what they think the game is about and whatnot, I'm pretty confident after the 
several playthroughs that I've done that I, I finally know what this game is about. <laughs> Ooh. But, like, like you're going to declare right now the objective truth of what this game is about? Yes. If anybody disagrees, they're wrong? That is correct. <laughs> Hell yeah. We're, we're operating on 100% internet rules. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Lay it on me. So... It's not controversial to say that Simon is a very depressed individual and this game is essentially a manifestation of Simon's depression. But I believe that it is a bit more specific in telling us who Simon is as a person and what exactly is the trigger for causing all of this to happen in the game. I believe that the events of Cry of Fear until the final chapter, as it were, are almost all what Simon wrote about in his book, which is a book that his doctor prescribed him to write as therapy, but it had the unexpected effect of just making his psychosis worse, unfortunately. Right. So I believe that Simon is depressed in a few ways. One, he's been bullied, and I think that that is shown through the way that he interacts with other people, but also I think through the college level, the idea of, wow, this is great, I'm going to college, this is lovely, and the music is kind of nice and calming, and then the lights go out, and then it's horrifying, and everything inside is his enemy, I think is the sort of realization of his nightmare that there's people who hate him here there's bullies here and going to college for him was a nightmare okay i can see that i believe that he wanted to portray himself in his book as this sort of heroic white knight sort of character and to do this depicts himself as this individual battling through monsters to try to get to where he needs to be he has to save this victim that's in this apartment building that he's never met before, but he goes out of his way from just walking home to go and rescue them, and we never find them. There's no resolution to that, because I think that he simply couldn't continue that narrative, and his mind has other things to answer about who he is for himself. The whole thing with Sophie, we get a little contradictory scene where one is he meets Sophie on the roof and he's like, you know, I've always kind of liked you. And she's like, uh, oh, I've never really liked you back that way. And then he's like, oh, and it's just a little bit awkward. And then she yeah. just suddenly kills herself. I think that that is how he would have preferred things to happen. Because in his mind, when it happens that way, Sophie is cut out of his life and there was nothing that he did wrong. Whereas in the reality, when we see Sophie's corpse in the game, we get this little scene of him, like, pestering her and bothering her, being like, no, don't leave, I love you. And that, to me, was kind of, you know, Sophie was the only person who treated him well at college, so he latched onto her, but she didn't want a relationship, and he took that really hard and decided to uh, do what he did in the book, which is... Pretty much all the sort of uh, feminine S characters are out trying to kill him and are against him. And yeah. it's kind of 
I think, a window into just how far gone Simon is at this point. He, he wants to think of himself as a good person. And so there's parts in the book where it's like, oh, well, as a good person, Simon tried to do the right thing here. But then when we get our little flashback scenes, it shows that Simon's not really a good person. It's, that's not what it is. He just wants to be seen as one. And I think that a lot of the monsters that are portrayed here, they represent uh, his own insecurities and the things that kind of frustrate and bother him and annoy him. When it gets into the, the names of some of the monsters, there's monsters that are just called Fasters and Tallers. And I think that that's him pointing out that he wishes he was tall, wishes he was fast, kind of like more of a respectable male kind of person. And then one of the monsters is literally named after a depression drug, kind of how he wishes he wasn't so depressed and miserable and how he also kind of sees the depression drug as something holding him back from who he could be like. And he's just not the way that he wants to be and he hates having to use it as a crutch and stuff and possibly why he might not be taking his medication like he should and i i think that there's also uh just kind of like with with there's there's little babies and children my fan theory on those is that with the apartment buildings, there might be like crying babies or like playing children or like in the nearby apartments, just like screaming families and stuff like that. And he, he hates that and incorporated them into his story as something that would make sense for him to kill because they're terrible. What I got out of it was he seems like he's always trying to, I don't, I don't know if play, I I don't, I wouldn't say play victim, but he's almost trying to view everything as a, as a monster Mm -hmm. when like, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily proper to, to view children as, yeah, (laughs) as the enemy. Like it's literally everything. He seems very Mm -hmm. insecure you mentioned the thing about Sophie. It was Sophie, right? Yeah. Where, yeah, um, just, you know, getting turned down is this massive climactic moment mm-hmm. suddenly. And I hadn't thought about the college thing until you framed it like that. And you mentioned him being bullied. I could just as easily imagine Simon, like, awkwardly socializing and some yeah. people brushing him off and then him going home and being like today I was ostracized right, by everyone right. I saw and I wonder how much of it is genuine like struggles that he encountered external ones obviously he's got a lot going on in his own mind and how much of it is what he's interpreting in the world around him mm-hmm. I think the first times with that these moments start getting broken for us as we come across the enemy that is just a dude with a book for a head and I feel like that's supposed to represent literally the book like his his fantasy is becoming too contrary he's starting to forget that this is fantasy that he's in so when the book shows up to remind him hey remember this is just a book that you're writing he has to kill it he has to kill that idea because in this story he wants to still be the protagonist and he wants to frame himself as that if he remembers that this is just a book it's gonna it's gonna start messing him up 
And and I guess the do the book enemies even really pursue you? Because I feel like they they're one of the easiest to avoid. Because most things just run up and yeah. run up at you in this game. It's like the book's just kind of there, but in order to progress, you have to approach it and kill it. But I thought it was a weird standout case of the book guy just kind of stands there a lot of the time. Yeah, they have a a weak AOE around them. So it's like if he's I don't know. I, I interpret it as Simon continuing to go through with this book is is killing him. And so him approaching it is, you know, causing him to take damage in game. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a surface level thing. Also, reading might just not be his favorite activity. Uh, yeah, that could be <laughs> <no>. too. <laughs> <laughs> I just find it like how, how fascinating that like at the very very end of the game when you're just in going back to your house where you live and stuff there's still monsters there in like broad daylight and I've always interpreted that as like he always brings his troubles home with him like he can't escape them he can't shut them out he's just like for him it's like oh my god they're everywhere here too and when in reality it's probably that he either keeps making enemies around him or he brings them over with him or there's some reason that he refuses to just see normal people as just normal people they have to be the monsters too because not even the game in tone agrees with him that this is monster (laughs) fighting time yeah it's a very weird sequence because when you get there at least when i first got there i was like ah the horror is over Mm -hmm. demon child running across the street at me and i i have interacted with people in my life who do seem to think that almost everyone in the world is out to get them or is like evil in some sense and i get that vibe from simon that yeah if you put him anywhere you put him on a beach somewhere mm-hmm. nice tropical and sunny he would find some slight perceived or otherwise that would spiral into either a conspiracy or some kind of nightmare yeah. for him i also want to just point out with the book guy like a lot of the monsters have very set names that are very specific to either what they do or what they look like but with the book guy you would consider like maybe his name was Bookman or Book Suit or something like that for how like Pager. Yeah, something. But his name is literally the Stranger. Oh. And that to me is kind of like no no no. You're you're not in this story. I will not be reminded that this is a book. And that's how <laughs> I interpreted that. I do love looking at the enemies in this game. In a in a meta sense, encountering them in game, I want them away from me. Mm-hmm. Get away, you little freaks! But yeah, there's there's so much like symbolism. I I haven't committed their names to memory, but what you said about taller and faster, mm-hmm. kind of at first I was like, okay, well those are they were just lazy with the naming conventions. But if Simon's constantly viewing the world in an adversarial light Mm -hmm. and he's comparing himself to people nonstop, then that is like a window into his worldview. Something I didn't realize until I did a little digging on the wiki is how many of them have something to do with like leg trauma. Because mm-hmm. obviously, due to the car accident he got into, he, he can't walk. Yeah. And there's a lot of enemies that either emulate that, like they can't, they also can't walk, or mm-hmm. they have um, blades 
for their feet, or or they're disturbingly fast, which is probably how he perceives yeah. the world around him now that his mobility is limited. I don't know. That's it's a nice change of pace for the usual game that I play, where you're just mowing things down mm-hmm. and not really thinking about it. I wanted to mention the leg thing, but you've mostly done it. Yeah, honestly, the the idea he was he was already very depressed, and then he gets in this car accident, and at a point in the game, they the doctor. His doctor says that Simon refuses to talk about that day. And if it gets brought up, it's only called the Black Day. And it's like, all right, dude. But the fact that he refuses to talk about it, I think demonstrates by itself how big of a deal that was. And for for the ending that you got, it's the only ending where Simon does not kill himself. Yeah, I, I looked up the other endings and I was like, holy shit. Yeah. I, I I lucked out. It's kind of like, to me, that, that ending is very hopeful, the one that you get. Because yeah. all the choices that you make, the things that you do, uh, whether they're the, the choices that determine the ending or not, it shows that Simon is actually willing to work to get better. And, of course, with Carcass actually confronting it instead of running away, that one is pretty obvious you know you gotta confront the things that bother you you can't just turn your back on them but also with giving dr purnell the gun it's about understanding that therapy hurts and it's gonna suck but if you want to get better this is what you have to do and the other thing with it is one that i I come back to is in uh chapter two one of the first things you do in it is you find this piece of paper on the ground and it gives you a phone number. You type that phone number in and you call it. And Simon is just like, hey, I need help. Because it's like a depression line. And the voice says, basically, what what it comes down to is you're going to have to do it yourself. And Simon's just like, well, I don't want to hear that. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. And instead, it gives him uh, a series of numbers. And I think that, for me, the importance of that is, instead of just opening the door for him... It tells him how to open the door. I see that. And you, now it's my turn to say, you You touch on something I was going to mention later, the the bit with the, the carcass and the doctor, where it seems like he's, in the ending, that the good ending, quote-unquote. Yeah. I think you can just straight up call it the good ending, because I walked away from it thinking, wow, this Simon guy is, you know, he's trying his hardest. And then mm-hmm. I watched the other endings, and I was like, what the fuck happened? Right. What did I miss? But yeah, he's he's being vulnerable. That's how I interpreted the, especially the gun handoff to the doctor. I was like, oh, you're giving the doctor a means of hurting you. And he does hurt you, but he doesn't kill you. Right. And so, but yeah, you, you already touched on that. I like that, that he's he's working to get better is a good interpretation of the the path you can take to get the good ending. Yeah, because with the other endings, there's kind of mentioning how he he blames sophie for his misery they're in one there's one where he blames the doctor for his misery and in the good ending it's him sort of realizing you know what sure i didn't deserve to be in a car accident but a lot of my depression where it comes from it's me it's my fault if i'm gonna get better then i'm actually gonna start taking my medication actually start paying attention in therapy and do those steps and maybe he can actually repair his relationship with Sophie 
because that would be nice. Yeah. Doesn't he, in the in the bad endings, doesn't he kill Sophie or the doctor? Yeah, one of them he kills Sophie, one of them he kills the doctor, yeah. Yeah, just really in contrast with how I first mm-hmm. <laughs> experienced the game. I felt, I felt a little betrayed because I was like, you know, Simon, we're going to get through this, buddy. Mm-hmm. The other endings are probably, like, a little bit different. Oh, he kills innocent people and blames yeah. them for everything. Oh, how do you feel about Simon? Just, you know, would you hang out with them? Would you say, hey, this is a, this guy's all right, or I might know your answer here, but I don't want to assume anything. The thing is that Simon is, in my opinion, a very flawed but well-written character. I don't think that we are supposed to be like, Simon, what a great guy, but rather sympathize with the depression that he has while also recognizing that he can get better. And uh, I know people who are like Simon, and I've known people throughout my life that have been like Simon, and it can be difficult to be around people like this. And there's some people like this that, you know, I've had to cut them out of my life just because they uh, crossed boundaries and lines that they shouldn't have. And I need to look out for myself, too. But I think that it tells a relatable story for some people where they are depressed enough to see the world in such an adversarial way and to kind of look at other people, other things to blame for why things aren't going so well in their life other than themselves. So I I like Simon for how he's written. I probably wouldn't hang out with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm in the same boat because similarly, I've, I've known people that have like a similar worldview to, to Simon and they can be a little abrasive to put it mildly where you're like there's there's understanding and supporting them but then like eventually like you said you gotta look out for yourself i think what would make it or break it for me is how good of a sport is he in magic the gathering (laughs) i think i could reach simon and work with him if we could sit down at a table every friday however he could just as easily be a very insufferable player who blames everything on his opponent he could play stacks that's I don't, okay. I don't think I could reach him if he played stacks. That's the thing. <laughs> See, I, I could... If he's one of those people who shows up at a tournament and he's like, you know what, I lost, but it is what it is. Better luck next time. Yeah. But, I'll, but, but he's also like, you know, he's the same way he is in the game. I can reach him. However, <laughs> if he's like, goddamn man of flood, everyone's cheating, and that's why I lose, I'd be like, yeah, I can't. <laughs> I can't hang with this guy. He's unreachable. Why is everyone mad that I brought my land destruction deck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How come my 80 card deck is not performing well and I'm not drawing the, the shit that I need? You know, this is just this was just an opportunity for me to make fun of Magic players. I'd like to apologize to Simon. <laughs> he doesn't deserve to be compared to those people mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. Friday Night Magic. At this specific store, whose address I will give now. <laughs> oh, no, it's a universal experience, Astrid. Every every establishment I've played in, I found at least one person who I think I would, you know, I would pick Simon over them. But anyway, <laughs> now it's my turn to say, we got to move on, because I could yes, I could, I understand. <laughs> I could go for hours. <laughs> I'll never forget that tournament in 2015, though. 
but all anyway, right all right that's not important <laughs> it's not important um, all right i know this is something that you love to talk about so i'm just gonna give you the floor here the sound design in this game kicks so much ass mm. go i love the sound design in cry of fear a lot I really love the musician who's also the game director who is currently, I believe, the only person who has any sort of presence still like online and stuff from the original team. That's a great sound that they've got for the music here. Uh, Noise industrial is a favorite genre of mine. I think it works really well for Cry of Fear. It builds up tension. It just creates this horrifying atmosphere so well and I wouldn't change it. I think that it's brilliant. I think that it works completely and it works that way with its uh, softer tracks just as well as its more abrasive tracks. Either way, uh, Cry of Fear musically sounds fantastic. For its sound design, I am just so thrilled that they did the things that they did which really show the attention to detail. My favorite is, and especially at the hospital at the end of the game, you hear a bunch of like yelling and screaming and like footsteps and like knocking sounds. And that's because that hospital building that you're in is a real place that the development team went into, it was abandoned, and they stood in different parts of the building and just recorded themselves yelling and screaming so that the acoustics that you hear in the game are what you would hear if you were actually there in real life. I hate and, them for that. I yeah. Hate them. <laughs> it rules. It rules, but I also <laughs> fuck them for doing that to me. Me personally. <laughs> so I just had to get that out. Of course, of course. <laughs> I I appreciate them taking the extra mile on that approach, but otherwise I think that they showed a lot of really wise discretion for the size of their sound team, which was just a couple people. You know, they use some stock sounds that come with the the engine and whatnot to do like doors opening and footsteps and whatnot, but I think that they, they mixed it in really well. It can sound overpowering when there's no music, which I think is the right way to approach it, which one of the things I'm holding back on talking about is what's influenced this game. We may or may not get there, but I really, really appreciate their ability to juggle the sounds of a loud, deafening, screaming, and also just silence where you're waiting for anything to happen. And while a lot of variability is lost on using such a small sound bank, I think that also works, whether it was intentional or not, in favor of the world building of Simon's book, kind of showing how his imagination stops at a few sounds that he can think of for kind of like, everyone's against me. Oh yeah, how? And he's like, well... Like these things that all sound exactly the same with no difference in them whatsoever. Everyone is screaming at me, probably. Yeah, that was less than 20 minutes, but that, that was some good gushing, I feel. I mean, I, it's, it's so fucking cool. And, and, I, and I love that you know so much about it, too, because I didn't know about the size of the sound team. I wasn't even thinking about the music. Um, I was just thinking about how they torment us with the real-life noises 
yeah. uh, that they make. So, yeah, that rules. The The bit that really got me was the apartment buildings when you're in those and you mm-hmm. hear people banging on doors and stuff. Yeah. I've, I've never had a game that really made me feel like I was going to die. <laughs> like, the, the night of me playing this game or the nights after I would play it, I'd go to the gym and to get my adrenaline going, I'd be like, I'm in cry of fear. I need to run. <laughs> I need to run away from whatever's behind me. Obviously, the graphics are a little dated, but I still think it looks it looks great. But the sounds are just so, I don't know, I, they're really immersive to me. And so you you feel like, yeah, there's someone right next to you banging on a door. There's somebody running behind you. There's somebody screaming in your face. The chainsaws, the the fucking chainsaws, it, you know, it really makes you feel like you're about to be sawed in half by a guy named Sawyer. <laughs> <laughs> what does that symbolize, do you think, the, that the guy's name is Sawyer? <laughs> <laughs> I always figure he has a saw. And you're dead. Oh, okay. I don't know. Like, (laughs) I've always interpreted kind of like the existence of the chainsaw in horror basically ever since The Last House on the Left in 1972 has been just the embodiment of something that you don't want to have happen to you. Like, if there was a weapon that you wanted to be struck with, it's not that one. (laughs) because that one would suck that that is true and so I I, I thought that the dudes of the chainsaws kind of always embodied the like the personification of adrenaline like just fear panic and possibly like paranoia it's it's a weapon that is both like really big and unwielding but it has a speed to it Mm-hmm. And so there's like like oh it's a big fucking thing but also part of it is is going around so fast that uh yeah there's just so many awful things about getting killed with a chainsaw now that mm-hmm. you think about it really I'll have to revise my my murder weapon tier list <laughs> Another thing I saw was that when Sawyer cuts you you know and fuck me like I mentioned this as a joke but there could be something to be said here about Sawyer cuz he's the he's the tall like chainsaw guy right Yeah and I feel that it it would it would behoove me to say that I never interpreted it this way but if if we insist on calling him like Sawyer it would be like well that's the last name of the family in Texas Chainsaw Massacre Oh My inner horror fan is like you should mention that and I'm like okay <laughs> I'll mention it <laughs> I was just going to say, when you get killed, if you get killed, you know, I got killed. I won't speak for everybody here. I know you're like a horror game uh, expert, so this probably didn't befall you. But I think he saws you in half at like the torso. And I saw some people saying like, oh, it's repre- it represents like his trauma of like losing his legs. I think you could just as easily say it's just a scary fucking guy with a chainsaw. But right, I like that this game makes you think so much about the other enemies that you're like the giant freak with a chainsaw Mm -hmm. might have more to him but also he is just a giant freak with a chainsaw right another enemy i wanted to to talk about and i i didn't know if this would if you'd agree with me on this because this is just my own crackpot theory i did not snag from the wiki but uh there's those ladies in the woods and they they show up around the lake too i think 
mm-hmm. um, that are pretty quiet except for their breathing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're in white gowns and they just try to stab you. Yep, yep. I, I wonder if that's Simon interpreting, like, getting quote-unquote backstabbed by Sophie. Obviously, that's like a very unhealthy way to view uh, getting turned down. But yeah, and and you had mentioned about any like feminine characters in this game being out to get him. I do want to point out that the character model of those women with the knives running around and stuff like that. Yeah, they are the same character models, but just with longer hair and different color like attire as the women in the subway that are when you have to use your uh, flares to navigate and those ones are the ones in the subway are the ones named after the depression drug oh and so i do think that it's another way of like simon basically because there's there's a thing known about this drug that the reason that they name it this i've always been curious about it and I believe that it does but it's something that has been discontinued because of addiction and stuff like that and he might genuinely be trying to not take these even though they have a cumulative effect and he should be taking them because he's extraordinarily depressed but I almost interpreted this as they're trying to to get him back and he's like no I don't want to get back on the medication kind of thing but I also love the idea of because yeah there's a reason they take a feminine form and I think it's because he blames the women in his life for like failing him or not uh, treating him the way that he felt he deserved to be treated by them yeah and then there's the the ones that have like a baby pop out of them yeah like to also I think I think he just fucking hates kids yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, guess, I think so too. I genuinely think so. Yeah. Yeah. He And so this is me showing that I'm a cry of fear novice here, but is there any real closure to like the, there's like some predator living in the apartment buildings? No, there isn't. I genuinely think that this is my headcanon. I believe that doctor was like, Hey, write a book and it'll be therapy. And he was like, once there was super terrific, wonderful hero, Simon, and it was up to him to uncover the mystery of the horrifying, like, child predator that was living in this apartment building. He had to go in, and whoops, there's monsters after him. He had to take out these monsters to stop the predator. And then, because the book was intended to be therapy for him, it starts messing with him and he starts getting all fucked up about like only only Simon couldn't do it Simon was taken out of that situation by this goddamn doctor and and then it goes on from there that's how i interpret that first chapter yeah there's i i had completely forgotten about the person in the apartments that you're supposed to try to get to mm mm-hmm. mhm so, yeah, Simon's a terrible author. He uh, <laughs> lots of plot threads that are just dropped. Well, see, and I was worried that I had missed something, but I think it I think it does still fit in with the story. You just have to be you have to have the whole picture mm-hmm. and realize that yeah, he's working through this stuff and I do find it a little a little funny. 
that he would try to like, all right, who's the worst person that I could easily be like a hero to fight against? Okay, a predator, a child right, predator. Yeah. Uh, and then he just like halfway through that, uh, I actually hate kids. So I'm yeah, fighting kid yeah. monsters too. But yeah. I'm literally, <laughs> literally. Yeah. So he's hard to like this Simon guy. He just, <laughs> he's got a bone to pick with everybody. The, the subterranean sewer dwellers, he hates those guys. He's out to get them. Is there like a is there like a standout enemy that you really like either mechanically or thematically in this game? Well, you mentioned the sewer monsters. I actually really like them because there's that mechanic about them where if you hit them in the chest, it can free their arms and they're more dangerous. Yeah. I I don't know. I like dynamic enemies like that. Okay. I hate that I figured out that... Well, I, I loved and hated that I could see where they were in the water before they jump up. But then that just added to the, that added to the tension of like, oh, there he is. Yeah, yeah. There's a narrow corridor here and I have to go wake him up. I watched one of my partners go through that part and they could just see all of them. There's this part where you're supposed Uh, to get ambushed by a bunch and they were just like taking them out in the water. It's like one by one. And I was like, oh my God. Well. Is it the big room? Yeah, yeah. 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 I left one. You know, he's still out there. That one guy. He's taking his little snooze. I um I wanted to mention how you said, well, looking back on it in the big picture, you may have heard of this game. It's a little it's a little unknown, probably. You might not have heard of it. Uh, it's very niche. Hardly anyone talks about it. Silent Hill 2. <laughs> this game literally has a section that is ripped directly out of Silent Hill 2. Like, straight up. And it's it very much wears its influence on its sleeve. But you know the part where you're in a rowboat? Yeah. That's literally that was just so weird. That's literally just a part that's in Silent Hill too. So <laughs> I was wondering what the hell was going on because I haven't played any of the Silent Hills. I haven't mm-hmm. seen gameplay. And I was like, yeah, what is happening? So I will not spoil uh Silent Hill 2 or any of the Silent Hills for you. But Silent Hill 2 is one of the most influential video games of all time because what I was talking about was like, you know, like the the college, when you first get there, it's this, and then it changes into this. The monsters represent this. This is your character going through this. The environment means this, all that. That storytelling was first done in video games in Silent Hill 2. You're playing as a character who is going through this hellish world with monsters and it has to do directly with their trauma and it's very personal specifically for them and who they are and so if you like the storytelling of cry of fear i definitely recommend playing silent hill too because that is kind of like where all of it comes from but there's a lot of games countless games that took silent hill 2's method of storytelling and were just like Yep, that's that's what we're doing now. We're just making our video game a symbol of trauma, and every little part in it is going to be little parts where we delve into the specific trauma of the character. That rules. And God, like I I do like that. Even while we were just sitting here, like I'm thinking about more parts of the game. Like, did they just throw it in because it's freaky, or does it actually mean something? Like, I'm thinking about the train part, and, you know, my little chimp brain was in the moment, like, I fucking hate this train, all these enemies, and I don't have enough health. Now, looking back, I'm like, is this how Simon feels when he's in public? 
Right. Does he hate that his limited mobility stops him from getting on transit anymore? Or is he more self-conscious now? There's just like every little bit of this could be linked to some kind of insecurity or trauma or experience from the from Simon. Do you know who David Lynch is? I've heard people who do movies better than me with their brains talk about him. (laughs) Uh, Oh, this is very Lynchian. And then I say, ah, very Kafka-esque. And I don't know what either of those words mean. So then I just... (laughs) But no one challenges me on it. So tell me about him. David Lynch is infamous for having movies that, well, Silent Hill 2 was very inspired from David Lynch stuff. His movies are very metaphorical very surreal very symbolic of different larger bigger picture things that are happening and david lynch refuses to explain what his movies are about for instance i highly recommend watching well several of his movies but i'm googling his movies right now to see if i've watched any of them (laughs) i haven't there's a movie in particular he did called mulholland drive and Existing right now is a website called Mulholland-Drive.net, and on there is a 167-page essay someone wrote about what they think Mulholland Drive is about. And as using that as an example, David Lynch has said that people have interpreted Mulholland Drive, and he said, and some people have got it right, but he has not said who those people are, only that there are people who have understood it the way that he intended. And I don't even think that the people who have got it right know that David Lynch agrees that they got it right, you know? According to him, though, uh, nobody has interpreted his film Eraserhead correctly yet. I still need to see that, but that's on my radar because I know it's a, it's a freaky little film. Yep, the, the undisputed king of surreal horror, Eraserhead, yes. <laughs> I assume it has something to do with pencils. Uh, it, it, I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it can crack the code. No one before me has really put their mind to it, but I'll I mean, I'll you might out. as well <laughs> attempt it, for you know, for all you know. yeah that's cool though yeah it's i i do love seeing influences between games or movies or all that stuff how it ties together i think it's really cool like a little lineage or i I always call it like seeing the dna of something else and like Mm -hmm. like resident evil 4 bleeding into like dead space is the one Mm -hmm. i always look at but um there's just so much out there and so I'm excited to keep like exploring the genre and seeing those influences. Ooh, I don't know if you'll agree with this or not. Or Well, I, I guess I'm not really taking a stance here, um, but I do want your thoughts on it. What do you think of the jump scares in this game? I think that this game kind of accomplishes the impossible for me which is it has jump scares that even after however many there are in this game, and there are a lot, <laughs> they still get me. Most of the time, after like two or three jump scares in a game, I'm like, all right, and that's it. None of the other ones will get me, and I will be fine. Cry of Fear still gets me with them. And I know that a lot of people's first inclination is to say that uh, jump scares are cheap, But I think that jump scares only have a cheapness if that is what the horror is relying on. And I don't think Cry of Fear relies on jump scares for horror. 
they're just another feature of the horror in the game. Yeah, I I could see that because yeah, eventually you can get desensitized to jump scares or at least when I'm playing stuff after a while, I'll still get startled by jump scares, but I'll like I react to things like that usually by getting angry or annoyed, and so mm-hmm. I'll just go, oh yeah, scream in my face, oh, I can do it too. But in this game, every every damn jump scare nearly, I'm like, ah, okay, like that's there's still some magic there. I'm still pretty scared of this game. I I like the way you put it that it's it's just a feature. It's not the it's not the only thing that's that it's relying on to unnerve you. All right, we didn't have to come to blows over it. <laughs> I I thought about being stubborn and but like I. I can't I'm too really. reasonable of a person. Yeah, you're you're <laughs> supposed to be stating objective truths that I can still argue with, so we I've, have conflict. But no, I spent um, too long in the horror genre to be reactionary to people's takes <laughs> in the horror genre. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you hear that phrase like, "Are the are the scares or the jump scares earned?" And I think that this game jumps from ah, there's someone screaming in your face to oh, you're just in a really creepy setting now. Not necessarily getting jump scared constantly. Now you're left to think about what's going on around you and what's your next goal. And sometimes the enemies aren't screaming in your face. And so I I think it does earn that tension. I hate everything that screams at me in this game, but I I have to respect them too. They're just little freaks doing their jobs. (laughs) Except for that weird giant spinning head thing. I don't know what the hell that's all about. The face, yeah. yeah. Do we have any face theories, or is that guy just a weirdo? Um. And it's okay to just call him a weirdo, Astrid. You know, <laughs> if you want to just call him a freak, go for it. I, I think that it's how Simon views himself. Just really? kind of like self-loathing of like that's what I look like to everyone. It was the very, very first part of the game. You're just taking pictures of the camera, and the f- the face is the first jump scare in the game. I feel like for Simon, it's just like, I was just going around, taking pictures of the city at night. I'm a photographer. And then bam, I lost mobility. And the next time we see the face is when it's trapped in the floor, unable to move, just looking hideous. And I think that that's how Simon views himself. God, there's got to be an enemy in this game that I can just get you to call a freak with no deeper meaning in it. I mean, there is. There is? Yeah, the sewer monsters. They're just freaks. There's gotta be... See, I'm sympathetic to them. I'm sympathetic to the little sewer freaks. I feel like there's there's like a little society down there that's... That's the one nugget of truth. Everything else is uh, in Simon's head, but he really encountered subterranean frog people. Absolutely. In the sewers of Stockholm. And that's why the police were going through his book. Uh, they were, they were actually <laughs> looking for it's a cover-up operation have you have you played the multiplayer for this i have not i never got it to work it's yeah yeah it takes some doing to get it to work i streamed it this past weekend and i would say 70 percent of the time you went to a new area i would get kicked and my buddy was hosting, and so I would just have to quickly reconnect. And it only took, like, about, I would say, 15 seconds to reconnect, but it was just a bit of a hassle. Do you know anything about the the campaign, like, story at all? Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's so goofy. Like, isn't it... 
like the police go into Simon's book and stop him from getting hit by the car or something. I don't I don't understand it cuz the single player experience makes sense cuz you're like you're in Simon's mm-hmm. mind palace, you know, this is the stuff going on in his head. And then, you know, Sven and I don't know another Swedish name. They <laughs> are our boys in blue jump into the book and <laughs> they're shooting at monsters inside someone else's head. Very weird experience. And also, the horror kind of decreases when you've got buddies with you. Yeah. But still still freaky. Still a lot of disturbing imagery. You walk along that... Um, I think it's the lake that Simon rose across. There's now like a big pier or like walkway that goes across the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And it's it's pitch black outside, but it's punctuated by occasional flashes of lightning. And you can see the enemies further in the distance in their little respective spots on the pier. And I wasn't expecting the, the lightning moments in this game to like be so effective, but it's, it's really cool. But yeah, unfortunately, you're just a couple of silly Swedish police officers blasting your way through. I unfortunately interpret the multiplayer as kind of like copaganda. Yes. As this sort of... Um, oh, Simon killed these cops, but they were the only ones who could have brought him out of his depressive episode. And I'm like, I highly doubt that. I really do. And I feel like that's what it's supposed to be, but yeah. Yeah, I. it's definitely more of an afterthought. And I'm going to choose to believe they were after the secrets of the frog people. It's a good. It's a good one, for sure. And if I go missing pretty soon, we'll all know why. Because you talked about the frog people. Yeah. I'm getting a little too close to the truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Big Sweden doesn't want you to know about Big frog Sweden. people. <laughs> yeah. The combat in this game. Is it like... I feel so conflicted about this one too. Because I want to take a combative like stance on it. But I can see the argument both ways. I've seen some people say that like... Combat sucks in this game. Hitboxes are janky. But... Also, I feel like you're not supposed to feel like a master of combat in this situation. And part of me feels like the game would lose some of its oomph if you could very intuitively fight everything in front of you. So, Ashton, you have to pick a side. Either the combat's perfect or it's garbage. It's garbage. (laughs) Elaborate on that. (laughs) <laughs> you you now you have I had really... an answer and you said look pick a side and I went okay <laughs> yeah now you really gotta twist the knife no you can have a I'll I'll permit you one nuanced take here <laughs> unless you truly feel like it's garbage and I'll jump up and down and cheer as you as you tear into it basically I think that the combat could have been better I don't actually think that it's like extreme like there's no redeeming qualities in it right it could be better you wouldn't put a dodging system in the game if you weren't expecting your players to use it and it's shit thank you thank you you wouldn't have uh hit boxes that dictate like the sewer monsters having their arms wrapped up if they weren't intended to work every single time oh thank you asher this is (laughs) this is so good to hear i thought there was something wrong with me (laughs) oh there's a dodge system uh, the only the only thing it did for me 
was it scared me because sometimes I would accidentally tap one of the arrows. Oh yeah. And Simon would go oh, and mm-hmm. dart a direction, and I'd I'd get scared. Yeah, I. It basically my hard take on it is, it's not the worst, but it could definitely be better. I I agree, and I'm glad you used the frog people example because. People were saying, like, did you know if you shoot them in the head, they won't get their arms free? And I'm screaming, I am. I am shooting them oh, in yeah. the head. I'm I shooting them in the head and watched the, their arms come free. And I've been like, yep, that's cry of fear. <laughs> yeah, but we love the frog people, so I'll give them <laughs> a pass. I know we talked about the enemies and we talked a little bit about some of the environments, but do you have a, a favorite area in this game either to to romp through or if like symbolically it has a lot of meaning i like the uh the part where you're in the subway using the flares to see around because it's terrifying and i like to be scared (laughs) is there is there something like i mean obviously there's always something chasing you in this game like nine times out of ten but was there was there like a persistent enemy behind you because I was panicking so much during that part that I was just hauling ass as fast as I could. Nah, they just are very clever with their sounds. That's all it was. Okay, well, mission accomplished, I guess, because I, yeah, I, my little brain was fried. I wanted to get out of there as soon as possible. you had said, like, right now you're sitting in the game in the park. If I were doing this, I would almost want to be in that area because... That area is, I think, the pinnacle of just the most terrifying sounding place to be in the game. But I was also like, I'm not going to tell Jam to go all the way back there and go willingly put himself through this hell. You couldn't make me do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. God. I'm in the, and I forgot to specify, I'm in the, what is it, Gustav Dahl Park? The the one with the silly little Resident Evil statue puzzle in it. Yep, yep. Which I assume is just mandatory in Sweden. But the... I forget the name of it, but there's another park where there's the... What's the Leatherface-looking guy called? The Saw Runner? I think that part may have... I don't want to say broke me. (laughs) But realizing that if I just stood still and looked around, I could see them, like, twitching in the bushes waiting for me to show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dudes call them. I thought they were. I thought there was one called a slower, but I don't know. It's not them, no. Okay, but just that that part of the game really stuck with me because it filled me with so much dread when I can see an enemy and I know that like I have to confront it and I have to take the, I have to initiate it. I'm kind of okay with a game sending enemies at me, and I'm like, okay fine, this is happening to me, but to take the steps, like, every every moment I move forward, something might get triggered and jump out mm-hmm. of a bush at me. For some reason, that really that really messed with me going into that park. Yeah. And I, I guess that isn't necessarily something to do with the park. That was more the, the layout of the enemies, but still. I would, I would rather have combat, th- uh, like, thrust upon me than for the game to say, all right, go forward. Haha. And like very clearly have stuff waiting right. for me. I'm trying to think, there's a there's another part in the subway system. I don't think it's the the flare portion, but there's 
and this is dipping into the sound design again, where it just sounds like something breathing constantly. And I don't think yeah. it's linked to an enemy. And it, that was another one that just my my brain was telling me, like, you need to get out of here, dude. Like, mm-hmm. there's this is a bad place to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's good to know that you can actually feel fear, Astrid, because that was <laughs> one of the things I was wondering. Like, do you still get scared at these games anymore? Or have of course you I do. Compl- Love to be scared. I've, I've yet to see it. I, I feel like you're always the most calm, collected well, that's the thing is like my reaction to fear most of the time is oh man that was scary (laughs) i'm um, slightly different in that regard but yeah (laughs) it is that is good to know it's good to know you can still fear feel fear all right well now i have to ask my my astrid questions since we need we need an update have you have you beaten any records since the last time you're on the podcast i've probably beaten my own personal bests for remorse to list both in any percent and in glitchless fun fact bringing it kind of back around remorse to list was developed by a single person who also did a half-life 2 horror mod campaign of a game called gray which is scary it reminds me a lot of cry of fear but I prefer Cry of Fear greatly. Gray is also, like, stupid hard. <laughs> oh, that that is something that you mentioned earlier when you said this game is hard to recommend. Mm-hmm. Is it because of the difficulty? Is it because of the imagery? Like, what, what makes it a little hard for you to, to recommend this game? I think that the only reason I would recommend it to people is, like, hey, this does a really good job of telling a very interesting and sad story, and I think that not a lot of games uh, are like this, and there are now. There's a lot of games that have been inspired from Cry of Fear now, but it's really kind of like revolutionized storytelling uh, and gameplay mechanics that could be in a survival horror game mixed together like this. It stands out to me. But then I would also have to be, hey, you're just going to get have, have to get past the stupid train platforming section, the <laughs> apartment platforming section. You'll have to deal with how jank the combat is. You'll have to deal with how this game doesn't tell you about healing supplies and all that kind of shit. And how uh, this game deals with a lot of subject matter that is extremely uncomfortable and it doesn't really try to approach those subjects with more tact rather just kind of being hey look at this this is miserable and sad yeah yeah i mean the warning screen for like when when you boot up the game and it's like hey like just a heads up there's sensitive stuff in this and they picked like the aftermath of a guy shooting himself in the head with a shotgun like, yeah. that's the image in the background, and I'm just thinking, maybe pick something else? Like, if you're warning people? So, yeah, I think lack of tact might be a, a mm-hmm. good term there. But I, I'm i still really glad that I played it, even though I was, I was frustrated at parts. I'll readily admit that. I think it's a, a very fulfilling experience once you get through it, and 
being able to look back on it and talk about it with your friends is is a nice reward as well. Well, I think that's about all I all I got for you, Astrid. Do you have anything you want to plug before we roll out of here? I'm Astrid the Horror Girl. I go really fast in video games sometimes. I am considered by myself and my community to be one of the more chill horror streamers out there because I try to have horror games as a relaxing and inviting experience. I also just love the genre and I love to talk about it. I have my own podcast that I need to get jam on and I make horror music and I make horror content myself. So there well, you Astrid, go. Where, where can we find your podcast? What's it called? On YouTube. Uh, it's called Press Start to Scream. It's on YouTube. It's on uh, Spotify and some other places you can listen to podcasts too. Everyone go listen to that right now. Leave this podcast and go to that one. <laughs> um, and also since we're on the internet and we're trying to be as objective and taking hard stances it's not just she's considered by her community as a very chill horror streamer. She is the chillest. So I can vouch. It's pretty badass <laughs> going over there and seeing what she's playing. Because, yeah, you're, you're just like, oh, yeah, doop-a-doo. I'm just going to casually and speedily go through, like, some of the most fucked up imagery uh, I've seen. Remorse the List is a treat to watch you go through. Because you're just having, like, normal conversations and the freakiest shit is trying to kill you. So, I've, Look, I've always enjoyed that. When you're going through the game on like your 60th playthrough, it it be like that sometimes. <laughs> it's like punching into work. Pretty much. If you ever want to come by and just see me beat Nosferatu: Wrath of Malachi in less than a minute, I I got you, that for you too. What the? F- How fast did you do that again? Uh, I have it in 46 seconds. Is my time <laughs> right now? That isn't well. Okay, we're, uh, I'm going to get bogged down. I'll probably bug you about that after the podcast because <laughs> you play such cool games. But Astrid, can I get you to say the line? I got you. All right, everyone. NPC, see you later. Woo!